Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. It's a wonderful opportunity to stand, uh, stand forth and proclaim the truth of God's Word on Resurrection Morning. This is a bit like Super Bowl Sunday for a preacher, you know. Um, how, do you, how do you possibly do justice to the momentous occasion that you're talking about? There's uh, really no adequate way to even really put into words uh, this history-changing, destiny-determining event that we're talking about in the resurrection. Yet at the same time, in, in preparing for this, uh, it's, it's wise to not just study the Bible, but to study the culture. And this Sunday is a Sunday that our culture generally just doesn't get. Usually Newsweek, Time Magazine, they have expose pieces on Jesus had a wife. We found the, we found the bones to Jesus' body. The resurrection can't possibly be true. And one of the things that's most disturbing, even one of our elite institutions, University of North Carolina, has a religion professor by the name of Bart Ehrman who says that the resurrection can't possibly be true, but that doesn't mean that Christianity is worthless. Christianity still teaches a lot of great proverbs for how to live well. You want to have a happy life? Then you know what? Listen to some of those Bible stories. Don't take them too seriously. Just listen to them and get whatever morals out of them you can There's a problem with that view because there is no Christian message without the resurrection. Christianity does not exist without the resurrection at its core. We cannot live like the resurrection is untrue. That's not okay. We can't do that. You see, the whole system crashes down if that one thing is not valid been said, we really only have three options when it comes to the resurrection and, uh, by inference, the entire Christian faith. It's either false, it's a hoax, it's a fiction, a made-up fable, or it's a fact, it's historical. And we believe that on this morning, roughly 2,000 years ago, that if you were there to see it, you would have been able to behold, behold it with your own eyes. And when you think of the testimony of the apostles, men who had nothing to gain except shame, mockery, misery, and the most painful of deaths went to their deathbeds confessing that the things that they were testifying to were true. This morning, for us, I want us to really understand how crucial the resurrection is. Because the resurrection for the believer in Christ is a really interesting experience because it's not just something that we look backwards to, it's also something that gives us hope for the future. We don't think about it that way. We, we tend to kind of collapse everything into that one historical event and go, everything's good with me because of what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. But what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago is the down payment for everything that's going to happen to you in the future. And so don't be so simplistic that you push it all together. The problem is, even in the early church, there were people who kind of went, Hey, Jesus got up, that's all great, but um, I don't know what it means for us. Does that just mean that we live differently? Does that mean that things are kind of moderately better for us in the afterlife? And so Paul deals with that in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Now, for those of you who maybe don't have your own copy of the Scriptures, we have some Bibles in the pews right in front of you. They're, uh, I believe, red ones. You'll find the passage that we're referring to on page 815. If you don't have a Bible, uh, consider that a gift from Northside Baptist Church. We would love for you to be able to have that. And if there's anything in particular this morning as we start uh, th- that I want us to really catch, it's that we have a historical faith in the gospel. We have a historical faith in the gospel. It's not a fable. It's history. I want you to look with me at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says something interesting here as he talks about the historical fact of the gospel. Verse 1, Paul says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, one of the things about understanding the historicity of the gospel is understanding that the gospel requires a personal relationship. The gospel requires a personal relationship, and we see this in these first two verses. We live in a world full of facts, and it's not just enough to know the facts about the gospel. Paul talks here about the Corinthians' personal relationship with him and with Christ through the message that he proclaimed. He said, hey guys, I'm telling you the, the, the most essential things, the gospel, what is most important, which I preach to you, and then look at all the words that he used, which you received, which you stand in, by which you are saved. He's saying, guys, this is, when we talk about the gospel... This is not just the Encyclopedia Britannica. This is not just a history lesson. This is something that you have affirmed. This is something that you have believed. He's not saying it's just something that you've merely known facts about. I'll illustrate this. I'll talk about my personal relationship with the best running back that ever played in the National Football League. Yes, I'm referring to Walter Payton. You see, I've watched almost every video that I can on Walter Payton. I remember watching, not, not that I was a Chicago Bears fan, but I remember watching with my dad and watching sweetness run all over the field. And so I, at one point in my life, could probably recite every statistic about Walter Payton that was conceivable. I could say what year he was drafted, where he went to college, what his rushing average was, what titles he had won, all his really incredible feats. And he's dead now. For me to think that I have a personal relationship with him because I simply know facts about what he's done, it's kind of strange. I know about him, but if you could go up to Walter Payton and say, hey, I met a guy who really likes you. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Scott Davis. Never heard of him. And my fear sometimes is that's the approach that we take to our Christian faith is that we know facts, but those facts don't really mean anything to us. Is it possible that there will be people in this room that when that future day will come, that they stand before the Lord? Say, man, I, I, can, I can tell you the books of the Bible backwards and forwards. God goes, what's your name? Oh, yeah, you're the Trivia Pursuit guy. I didn't know you. The people in Corinth had a history with the gospel. They had a personal relationship with the gospel. Paul preached it, they received it, 
they could teach it. They affirmed it. And Paul says the result of you hearing the facts and kind of taking it in for yourself is that this message saved you. Now, it's not just enough to know the facts and to have a proper personal relationship. We see, secondly, that the gospel requires proper content. We don't just believe something. We believe specific things about the gospel. And we see this in verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. You see, the gospel requires proper content. And if you're willing to look, there are all kinds of gospels that are out there. Some of them are false religious writings like the Gospel of Thomas. Some are ad campaigns that tell if you use this toothpaste, girls will now like you. That's a gospel. If you use this product, your life will be better. But the true gospel requires correct content. And Paul lays it out for us in these verses. Did you see what he said? He said, I delivered to you what was of first importance. And he says, and here's what it is. The Christ died. Christ didn't die like your loved one died. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It was foretold. It was an atoning death. It was a death in our place. And so He died For our sins, according to the Scriptures, the Gospel. He was buried. He was genuinely dead. He was a real human being who could be killed. He could have nails driven through his hands and his feet. He could have a a, a spear pierced into his side. He died and he was buried. But he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. We see that not only was Jesus a true man who could die, a man who died uh, an atoning death, but he was raised on the third day. He wasn't just a true, he wasn't just true humanity, he was true divinity. And his body that bore our sin, his body was resurrected. Jesus was not some ghost-like spirit being. His body was raised. And it says here that the resurrection was witnessed. Who was the resurrection witnessed by? First and foremost, we see twice that the resurrection was attested to by the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So Christ's life and death and resurrection were witnessed by the Scriptures. But the resurrection was witnessed by appearing to people. There's a pretty exhaustive list that's given here. There are other appearances that Jesus made once He was raised that are not listed here. But there's a particular reason Paul is kind of presenting a court argument of official witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And so it says, he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, 
He appeared to 500 people. So Paul takes a key person, Peter. He takes an apostolic witness, the 12. He takes living people. He says, hey, he appeared to 500 people at one time. And uh, just in case you want to fact check me, uh, most of them are still alive. You know what he says? He says, but a few of them have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep? Was that a really long church service? Here's the thing that's amazing. is because of the reality of the resurrection, Paul could take death, the antagonist that no one can withstand and that all fear, and he can downgrade the worst that he can do to mere sleep. Yeah, hey, listen, a few of those 500 witnesses, they're dead. It's really kind of more like they're sleeping. Because you know why they're sleeping? Because they're going to get back up again someday. As Christ was resurrected, they will be resurrected too. And he goes on and he says, he appeared to James. He appeared to all the apostles. He appeared to Paul. Here's the thing that's interesting. You know who James was? James was Jesus' half-brother. Half-brother because they had different fathers. Jesus, yes, came from a mixed family. James was a skeptic, lived with Jesus and didn't believe in him. What would take a brother who doesn't want anything to do with his brother, thinks he's crazy, what would change his mind to make him now a leader in the church and a follower of Christ? A resurrection appearance would do that, wouldn't it? Who else? Paul was a persecutor of the church, proud of his heritage and his ability to throw Christians in jail. And yet, both James, the half-brother skeptic, and Paul, the antagonist of the church, are converted because something happened to them to cause them to change the entire trajectory of their life. The gospel doesn't just require personal relationship or proper content. It also requires a proclaimed resurrection. And we see this in verses 12 through 19 of our passage. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, friends, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The problem here is stated most clearly in verse 12. It says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Church of Corinth, believers in Christ. They affirm that Jesus was resurrected. That's not the problem. They're saying the category of resurrection just doesn't exist. There is no, there's no resurrection for, for me. There's no resurrection for John. There's no resurrection for Donnie. Resurrection just doesn't happen. Jesus was a one-time deal. And Paul says, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. If God could do it with Jesus, and if Jesus made promises that Um, where he is, we will be with him. And if we can't kind of inherit that with flesh and blood, can't God do it for us too? They had no problem affirming the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but they didn't affirm a general resurrection. Perhaps the Corinthians had kind of fallen prey to Greek thought 
that thought, you know, the body is bad. It's kind of like, you know, this outer shell. And as soon as we can get rid of it, you know, the better off we are. Let's get rid of this sinful, fleshly, earthly body and be done with it. Because what's, what's good and what's pure is what's inside. It's the spirit. It's the soul. So they would have affirmed the immortality of the soul. They just didn't want to affirm the bodily resurrection. Isn't the body what gives us all of our problems? You know, we have all these bodily desires. We have all these bodily functions. Let's do away with the, bo- with the body. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You can't affirm Jesus' resurrection without affirming that it will be true for us too. The history of the gospel points to the future of the gospel, and we have to proclaim this resurrection. So Paul states the centrality of the resurrection twice for emphasis. You see this in verses 13 13 and 14 and verse 16. Paul sounds like he's repeating himself. He says in verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, generally speaking, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ isn't raised, everything's vain. Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, guys, let's be consistent. Then Christ wasn't raised either. And that doesn't sound good. Because Paul goes on in this passage and he says, if the resurrection is not true, then guess what? Those apostles who died for their faith, they were liars. Their testimony was false. Christ is dead. If the resurrection is not true, Christ is dead And the apostles that we esteem have proven to be false witnesses. But he says something more than that. It's more than just the fact that these guys that lived 2,000 years ago lied. It's more than just the fact that the apostles' testimony is false. He goes on to say, if the resurrection is not true, then your personal faith is fruitless. Not worth a dime. Not worth a bottle cap. Preaching worthless. Death, you better be afraid of it. Sins, unforgiven. And you know what? For those who believe in Christ, you should be pitied because it's all a farce. There's a couple slides I want you to see. I don't know how well you're going to be able to see them on the screen here. But there is something different about the Christian message that is different than the message of any other religion or faith system. This is a a picture of how Christianity started in the top, oh, I guess it's the top left. You see that after a very public ministry, Christ was killed publicly. Christ came to church, turned the tables over. He taught. People didn't like what, religious leaders didn't like what he taught. Everything he did was public. And what that got for him was a public execution. Christ rose from a public tomb publicly. Do you ever think about this? Um, If you want to disprove the resurrection, where's the easiest place to do that? Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Produce the body. And if you can't produce the body, listen, Jesus got beat up pretty good before he he was crucified. So you know, if you can't find the body... Go find one about the same size, about the same weight, and disfigure it. And then drag it around town and say, no, 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 the apostles are lying. Here's the body. And if the apostles were faking it, guess what? Gigs up. So Jesus was killed publicly. He was put in a public tomb, and he uh, uh, came from the tomb publicly. 
He publicly showed himself to the general public. It says, all these people, to Cephas, to the twelve, to more than 500 brethren, to James, to all the apostles, to Paul. Jesus' resurrection was no secret. The Jewish leaders tried to say that the disciples stole the body. They They couldn't produce anything because Jesus had been out and about enough for the 40 days after his resurrection that there was no way that they could counter the argument. To produce a body when Jesus is walking around and say, this is Jesus' body, and Jesus goes, no, it's not. I'm my body. I'm right here. What are you doing? That's somebody else's body. You dug up a grave and beat them up, and you're telling, no, I'm right here. They couldn't do it. And so what happened? How did the Christian message spread? The public who observed the resurrection told the whole world what they saw. That's very different than the next slide, which basically describes how every other religious movement has started. Somebody has a private dream about God, or someone has a private angelic visitation uh, uh, about God, or someone has a private idea about God, and then what do they do? They tell their private interpretations to the public. You see the difference? This doesn't rest on the witness of one person. This rests on the witness of many people who saw, who touched, who hugged, who bowed before. And they went everywhere and they told, this is indeed historically what has happened. And so Paul says, listen, the resurrection is true. There are people that you can ask that saw it. And Paul in verse 20 states this fact, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Fact, period, end of discussion. This is not a private issue. This is a matter of public record. And friends, let's just say, for the skeptic here among us, let's admit something. We cannot prove the resurrection of Christ in a scientific laboratory. Can't do it. I don't know that that there's any historical figure that you can prove their historical existence in a scientific laboratory. But there's another place that we can go for proof of the resurrection. And it's not the proof of the science lab, it's the proof of the courtroom. And instead of empiricism, what does the courtroom rely on? The courtroom relies on the reliability of witnesses. And so Paul says, you want to call your witnesses? You're not collecting DNA samples. You can't do that. Jesus has ascended. You can't find his body. Well, no surprise there because it's not there. Don't send in the CSI team to figure it out. Let's hold court. And let's, on the basis of the evidence, and the basis of eyewitness testimony, see what indeed is the truth. And by that measure, anyone with a fair hearing will say that the deck is stacked in the favor of the testimony of these witnesses. So Paul states this fact that Christ has been raised. And these witnesses are where I think the testimony is most eloquent. Because when you think what has happened to God's people, what happened to the disciples at the crucifixion? What's the picture that we get of the disciples? These people left everything to follow Christ. They were his most intimate brothers. Jesus had warned them that this time was coming. And yet when it came, what did they do? It was not a pretty picture. They fled. They left him. They cursed and lied that they even knew him. The disciples at the crucifixion, not a pleasant picture. They were completely despairing and had no hope despite the warning that Christ had given them. 
But something changed. Because every single one of these men who had abandoned the Lord had some kind of experience that they took for a literal flesh and blood appearance of the risen Christ, and it completely transformed them. They weren't the cowering 98-pound wimps hiding in the corner anymore. They, They transitioned. They were transformed from trembling to thundering. And you know what they thundered? A message that at its core had the message of the resurrection of Christ. They were uncompromising. It was the central message that they preached in the very place where it would have been easiest to disprove it. And as I mentioned earlier, even the most convinced skeptics in Paul and in James were converted. And more than just the testimony of their bravado, they were willing to die for their message. And with all except one, they did. And they didn't die in, uh, 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 of uh, geriatric disease. They died painfully. They, died, they faced terrible, terrible deaths. They went all over the world and were isolated from these people that experienced the same thing that they did. But they all went to uh, terrible deaths, uttering with their last breath that their proclamation of the resurrection was true. Friends, people have died for lies in the past, but no man dies for what they know is a lie. These disciples, separated by many countries, uh, separated by language groups, spread all over the world, not a single one of them said, you know what, you know what, we took the body. Spare my life. I'll tell you where you can find it. I'll give you the location. They all went to their grave, convinced that it was an honor and a privilege to die for the resurrected Lord. With their last breath, they affirmed the thing that they had been telling all along and counted the message of the resurrection worthy of the spilling of their blood. Because of this, Paul says something really incredible to us. And it's not just that we have a historic faith in the gospel, but we have a future hope in the gospel. Paul makes the argument that there's a seamless transition between Christ's resurrection in the past and our resurrection on that final day. And he says this, point number one, that Christ is the example in verses 20 through 23. Christ is the example. But now Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, So also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. He talks about this idea of the firstfruits, the first sheaf of the harvest that was brought to the temple. And here's the thing that's great about firstfruits. He says, listen, Jesus' resurrection is the firstfruits. The firstfruits always implies more fruits. Jesus didn't die and get resurrected in isolation. He is the first fruit of his brethren who will one day be raised. Now listen, we know this. Technically speaking, Christ was not the first to rise. Christ is not the first person to rise from the dead. As a matter of fact, he went about uh, raising people from the dead. Lazarus, his friend, was dead. Jesus rose him back up. Now what happened to Lazarus? He died again. And so when we talk about the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus rose again, he rose to a life that knew no death. And in that sense, he was first 
and the forerunner of all of those who will trust in him. And Paul says, listen, guys, we're in this mess because in Adam, we're all messed up. We're all messed up. And just as in Adam, there were great and severe and far-ranging consequences that brought untold evil, so in Christ, those who are found in Christ, will all kinds of untold good come. As in Adam, so in Christ. So the Corinthians hear this, they go, wow, that's kind of cool, but how does this all work out? I mean, listen, some of our friends that are dead have been dead for a long time. Their bodies got to be thoroughly decomposed and rotted. And Paul says this, just as God has willed for you to have a body that is fit for earthly existence, God has so willed that you will have a body that is fit for heavenly existence. You don't have a problem understanding that God made a body for you here. What's the problem understanding that God will have a body for you in the future? Trust God. And then he goes through and he gives us three principles that I think are really very helpful. The first is the principle of transformation that we see in verses 36 to 38. He says this, You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of his own. Now, I love this picture of transformation because sowing is a picture of burial, isn't it? You take the seed and you put it in the ground. And what happens? Once you put it in the ground, the seed that you planted, what happens to the seed? What happens to the seed? It gets destroyed. And it transforms into something different. And what Paul's saying here says, guys, listen, what you have right now is the seed. Now, what you're going to have isn't going to be quite so different from what you have. It's just going to be redeemed and purified and perfect. But the principle of transformation teaches us that the seed must die for the new life to grow. He says, guys, that's the hope that we have for our own resurrection. He talks about the principle of variation in verses 39 through 44. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. Uh, men have one flesh, beasts have another. Uh, birds have a certain kind of flesh, fish have a different. The, they're heavenly bodies, there's earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earth is another. There is one glory of the sun, there is another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised in an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body body. He goes through and he says, guys, different kinds of flesh, man, beast, bird, fish, different kinds of flesh. There's a different kind of flesh for an earthly existence than there is for a heavenly existence. And he says, guys, listen, I know we talk about the glory of the sun, the moon, the stars, and we tend to think that this is pretty good. There is a certain glory that God has given us by being made in his image. It's fun to be alive. These guys, listen, don't for a second think that this is as good as it gets. There is a glory to the existence that we have now, but what he has in store for us for the future is far more glorious, far more beautiful than what we experience now. Just as a plant exceeds the glory of the seed, 
Paul uses that analogy of variation to say, friends, if you like life now, just wait. Wait. Wait to see what I do for you with the body that I will give to you. In verses 45 through 49, he talks about the principle of chronology. And he goes back to this conversation about being in Adam, being in Christ. He says, as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just, listen to this, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Friends, we all start out in Adam. The Bible's pretty clear that when we start out in Adam, we start out in death. But through faith in Christ, we can enter into life. And just as we have had a body like Adam, it says in verse 49, just as we've had an earthy body, we will one day bear the image of the heavenly. I don't know what Jesus' body completely and totally looked like. You know, there were people that recognized him, but there were people who didn't. Do you know that? Jesus is walking with the disciples on the way to Emmaus and having this whole conversation. They don't know who he is. How do you explain that? There was something different about him, but yet when he appeared to his apostles, they knew exactly that it was him. So there was continuity with who he was before the crucifixion, but there was some kind of discontinuity. His glory was greater. His body was restored. What does all that mean? I don't know. But the hope that we have is whatever his body is like, what the Bible's telling us is that is the hope that we have for those who trust in Christ. That there is a greater body, that there is a greater life, that there is a greater hope than we can ever imagine. And he concludes in verses 50 through 58 by talking about the fact that our future translation leads us to our total victory. Verse 50, I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all die. We won't all sleep. But we will all be changed in a moment, as quick as you can blink your eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we who are alive will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality... Then will come about the saying that is written, Death, swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul says our body's got to be translated. We've got to translate our body from being perishable to being imperishable. And that has to happen for us to gain our inheritance. Our inheritance is the kingdom of God. And to get it, we can't be simple flesh and blood. To, to, to gain the victory that it says over sin and death, we have to be translated. And Paul concludes 
with this statement to say, Dear friends, because all of this is true, because we have been given victory through Jesus Christ, press on. In a world that thinks your claims are ridiculous, press on. When you live for something that people cannot see, press on. When you have a value system that seems to be hopelessly out of step with the current world order, press on. Be immovable. And always do what you know God wants you to do because you know your toil is not in vain. Never give up. Never quit. Never not press on. The challenge for us this morning is, I think, several fold. On my, my way to church and probably on your way to church too, you pass... Uh, probably a fair number of health clubs, gyms, brutal iron, whatever. We live in an age and a day that is obsessed with personal fitness. You know what? If there's something you don't like about your body, if you've got enough money, you can fix it. A little suction here, a little Botox here, you know, we can make you a regular Mr. Potato Head. You know, we'll take your nose here, stick it over here. You know, take your lips, put them back of your head. Uh, you dream it up, you can do it. In a day and age where even among Christians, we, we understand the responsibility to, to take care of what God has entrusted to us, are we so concerned with the physical that we don't give a rip about the spiritual? Paul would say here, guys, listen, this body is the seed. Don't caress the seed. Love the seed. The seed has a job. The seed's job is to die and to bring about whatever comes next. So don't be so obsessed with things that are external that you miss out on what is most essential. He says something else here that I think is important. You are not allowed to think of Jesus as merely a good teacher who pipes out pious proverbs on how to live successfully. Jesus if he didn't rise from the dead, was the ringleader of this lie. We cannot think of of Jesus as a good moral teacher if the great moral that he teaches is that he duped all of us. The resurrection determines whether Christianity is true or worthless. And friends, for all of us, whether this is your church home, whether you're visiting, whether you're back from a long absence, if Jesus got up out of the grave... If we believe that this is true, if we believe not just that it's historical, but that it gives us a hope for the future, what in the world are you doing about it? He closes, he says, Beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. For those of us that trust God, what do we do with the message of the resurrection? How do we abound in the work of the Lord? How do you serve your church and your community for the purpose of sharing the hope of the gospel? How do we verbalize the truth about what God has done in Christ? If we're a believer, we're to walk in it. And friend, today, the message of the resurrection just unravels you. You say, how can can people... Look at their future death and downgrade it to sleep. 
and actually say, you know what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For Paul to say, man, I really want to go, but I think it's still good for me to stay because I can help people. You know, 50-50, what do I want? God, you choose. Oh, stay? All right, you must have more work for me to do. When you hear this message and you don't know what to do, the challenge for you is to believe it. To believe that you're not in church, perhaps for the first time in a long time by accident, that God has sovereignly arranged for you to be here. To hear from His Word that His Son died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that by the power of God, God vindicated His sacrifice by raising Him from the dead. That all who have faith in Him can walk in newness of life. Do you want it? Friend, it is available to you. Jesus would say to you, Come, all who are weary, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus will not be a, 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 a boss that you hate to work for. He says, I will teach you. I will train you. But whether you find yourself a believer, a believer who maybe needs some remediation, or someone who doesn't believe just yet, what will you do with this message? How you will you respond? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection. We thank you for your son who died gladly to bear our sins, to bring us back to God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us a beautiful day. Thank you for giving us friends that we may be able to enjoy a good meal with this afternoon. Lord, thank you that we know that you have provided the solution for our sin and our alienation from you. Help us to trust you. For those of us who do, help us to be laborers in your vineyard for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.